Hi, and welcome to Nifigen. My name is Peel, and today I have Markus Fjellstrom with me. Markus was until recently a PhD student at the Department of Archaeology and Classical Studies at Stockholm University. Here he carried out his research on diet and mobility patterns in the late Iron Age to the late 19th century in Sápmi. Hey, Peel. I was wondering if you, to begin with, could tell me what Sápmi is. Sápmi refers to an area that comprises Norway, Sweden, Finland and the Kola Peninsula in Russia. It is an area where Sámi people live and where Sámi language spoken. What were the research questions you were interested in? So the research question of my thesis were to study if cultural diversity in Sápmi is reflected in different food practices, then also how individual life history and studies of mobility can contribute to the understanding of life. A third question was, or what role the reindeer had in the diet. What is it that we want to uncover and understand when we do research in archaeology? So I think the goal of archaeology is first of all to get a better understanding of the past, and in some matter then also to better understand the modern world, but also sometimes what is to come. We can't tell the future, but maybe we can get a better understanding of how people act in the past would help us act better in the future. If you take it from the focus of my study and what food cultures can get to that understanding is that we can get a better understanding of, for example, social, economic and religious aspects of the past. I think it's important for everyone, it's not only for researchers. You studied human remains and animal skeletal remains as well from several divides in the northern Scandinavia. And to study these remains, you both need to dig them up and preserve them. You need to understand what's skeletal remains are made of. And what I'm getting is, is that this is quite broad. Parts of this is deep into the humanities mm. and parts of it is deep into the natural sciences as well. How broad background do you have? I've only studied human sciences. Archaeology is per se a very broad field in the sense that to understand the human past, we turn towards different disciplines. Radiocarbon analysis, I think, is kind of a known example we use in order to date remains. I started during the masters and I did not have any background in chemistry, which I needed, of course, later on. But it's something that's, that I got to learn during my study. In your research, you studied both human and animal remains. To study remains, they need to be excavated. And I guess the picture many have of archaeologists is someone who digs in the ground for either remains or artifacts. Um, but how does this actually work in reality? To start with, archaeologists today, we don't just go out and dig up stuff. It's very regulated, so you have to have permission. When it comes to my research, I've been looking at skeletal remains. They would preserve in soil differently, and that would depend on the constitution of the soil. If it would be acid, for example, then of course the bones would degrade much, much quicker. When it comes to the region I've been studying, is areas with, which are, have very acid soils, so the preservation is not always that good. And I have not personally been doing any excavations on this material. It has been um, in the magazines, in the archives of, for example, the, the Swedish History Museums. All, my, all archaeological material gets archived in different museums. And when it comes to skeletal human skeletal material, it's the Swedish History Museum. So when I started to raise these research questions that I was talking about earlier, I also looked at which sites are available, what, what material is there. Um, so then I looked up these different sites that I knew of. So at these sites, the remains were already available? Yes, they were. All these sites were excavated for different reasons as well. There is Silboyok, for example, that have been there. There have been ongoing ex rescue excavations by Nordbotten's uh, County Museum. It's still going on because 
the lands are eroding because of the water level that rises. And then Vivalen, for example, it's a site that was discovered in the early 20th century by a local farmer. And then this archaeologist, uh, Gustav Hallström, went there to do excavation. And then in the 80s, there was research excavations in the same area. Archaeological remains are mostly kept in museums today, and the skeletal remains that you have studied, they have been kept in the Swedish Museum of History. Um, how does it work when you want to study them? I guess for different reasons than they were originally excavated. To study skeletal remains, for example, you have to ask for permission at the Swedish History Museum. Still some sort of ethical vetting. It is. You have to uh, send them in your research questions. What is it you're going to do? Is it a destructive method? Is it a non-destructive method? When they then have a proof, then you get your hands on the remains and then you start examining. Yeah. When I get to look at the, the remains, first of all, I would make some kind of assessments if it's in a good shape. What I do is that I extract collagen from the skeletal remains, and that's what I use to study the diet and the mobility. And if the bone is very degraded, then the collagen might be as well. When I have this selection that I that I would think is representative for this site with my research questions, then I extract collagen. I've been looking at life histories as well for individuals. So then all our skeletal element remodels differently. For example, bones would remodel through one individual's whole lifetime. So when I do a collagen extraction and look at the diet of an individual at the bone material, then what I will see is actually the diet that the individual had 15 to 20 years prior to death. But then I can look at teeth. So for example, the first molar would be representative for an age around three years old. And the third molar would be around 13 years old. You should then analyze for a first molar, a third molar, and then a bone element from the same individual. You can get like the diet over the whole, over the individual's life. And then you can start also looking at mobility for one person, for one individual. How does one identify the differences between mobility and just changes in, in diet? Uh, so then I send the collagen in for analysis in a mass spectrometer to analyze the stable isotopes. And the stable isotopes that I've been mostly interested in is carbon, nitrogen, sulfur and strontium. And carbon and nitrogen are more specifically used to look at just diets, as sulfur and strontium is more used to look at uh, mobility patterns. If you have a change in diet from childhood to adulthood, that can be a sign of mobility. Not necessarily, but it can be. But if you then combine it with, for example, sulfur isotope analysis, if you have different, very different values of sulfur from childhood, in childhood and in adulthood, then that individual must have been uh, moving. I have a question. Um, what does one actually need to say something about a population's diet as opposed to just one individual's diet? Yeah, it's a very relevant one and it's first and foremost about representativity. I mean, we don't know if this specific population, for example, would represent the whole population that once were. It's a fragment of it. When I study a site, I would study a fraction of that. It's difficult to get the whole picture. What I can get out from one individual when it comes to diet and mobility, I can't really tell specifically, as you say, if a person's eating strawberry or not. It's more about... Did this person have a terrestrial diet, living of animals that lives on land? Or did that individual live mostly on freshwater fish? And then also if the individual had a mixed diet. For example, seal boyok, there were a lot of animal remains left from the same time period that I used as a reference to study the, the diet. 
but it's not always you have that. So, for example, from Nivalen, there was only a few animal skeletal remains left. If you can make that baseline, it's a good thing, because then you would have a better understanding. A baseline is something to compare with. Yeah. And the way it works, if I have understood it correctly, is that if you know the stable isotopes in animal remains, then you can compare these with the stable isotope levels in the human remains. If the human's diet has consisted mainly of land animals, then these levels, they should coincide, so to speak. That's the idea. What do you do if only human skeletal remains are present? Like, if you don't have the animal skeletal remains to compare with? I can still say something about what they ate. It's not optimal, but what you can do is to use modern material and also to compare it with other sites that would have a similar way of living. It's not perfect, but that is also what we have within archaeology. We Sometimes we have to do with what we have. Yeah. How did you get into doing a PhD? I decided quite directly at the end of my master's that I wanted to continue with this type of research and because I thought it was interesting and I also thought that there is so much so much more that can be done with Sami archaeology and to get a better understanding of food cultures in, in Sami. So what I did is that I applied to the, archa the archaeological research laboratory had some positions out. I didn't get it. Then I tried some fundings and get it. So I think after the fifth or sixth time, I, I finally got a PhD position through the archaeological research laboratory. It's a process. <laughs> you mentioned that when you applied, you were applying for, for research questions within yeah. the framework of Sami uh, archaeology. How early in the process were your research questions formulated? They, they were formulated quite early, but then, of course, they've changed a bit. So how it works for the humanities is we have to write our own project description, and that's what we send for job application for a PhD position. Doing the PhD is a process. So I would say that the research questions that are <laughs> written down now in my PhD thesis are more or less the same that I had when I applied for the PhD position, but has changed a bit. Things happen, and I think I haven't had so much problem with it, but I think uh, what makes a good research question? I think it's a question that would raise, when you have some kind of responses to it, it would raise other questions. Because it, 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 the point of posing them is because we want to understand something. How was it in general to be a PhD student? It's been a very good experience. I've had really good times, also bad ones. But I've got to learn myself how I am and how I act and how I collaborate with people much more. When I finished my PhD, I thought I would never recommend someone to do a PhD because I've also had very bad times. And research can be quite challenging and researchers can be quite challenging as well. But it, what I've got out from it, it's still worth it. And That's good to know. Your thesis focus on the diversity of uh, Sápmi cultures studied through the lenses of the food. And Sápmi is this area in the northern part of Scandinavia, Finland, and and uh, and a specific peninsula in Russia. The Sápmi cultures exist today or ha has existed in the past. And it stretches down quite far into Sweden and Norway, uh, which is like the southern border. And what makes the Sami culture special? I would say, I would call it more Sami cultures, like several. It's not one culture in the sense that 
they do have things in they, the different cultures do have things in common but there are also very much differences so to just give a few examples you would have well, if you if you would talk about sami cultural groups you would have the mountain sami forest sami sea sami and one one or two things that differs them would be for example how held reindeer for example how i mean mountain sami they used to uh, and still do today, move over larger areas when they hurt, when it comes to herding reindeers. Or Sami moves over smaller areas. For the coastal Sami or the sea Sami, they are more settled and would have like a few reindeers that they would. So that's that's the picture, but it, uh, the general picture. So if I understand it correctly, like Sami culture is first of all, it's not just one culture. Yeah. Then also to continue on the cultures thing is, so you have different Sami languages. There are some that are close to each other, like they can understand each other, but others won't. The Sami population in Sweden is the only recognized indigenous group in Sweden. Yes. And when it comes to study the remains of indigenous groups, it raises a lot of ethical questions. Yes. I will give. A, I will go out from the Swedish example because this is what I know the best. At the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, race, racial biology was quite a big thing, not only in Sweden but in the whole world, Western world, and in Scandinavia. And this ended up in, for example, archaeologists at that time or other plundering and gathering skeletal material from the north. It's a thing that we have to consider because it's part of our history as a discipline. It means that parts of the remains you have studied, that they have been excavated yeah. in the conjunction with research that we today would not consider to live up to scientific methods. Or ethics. Or ethics. Yeah. But what we are left with is, so to speak, that we are left with remains that are now kept in museums. It raises some ethical questions when we go back and use these remains. Yeah. And I was wondering if you have some reflection about this. Also, who owns the rights to approve of your research, so to speak? Your last question is very interesting and I can't really answer it. I mean, who owns the rights to the material? It's a big question and it's difficult to answer. So what I've been doing in my thesis is actually that I've had a quite big chapter trying to discuss this kind of thing more than actually take a stand. There's loads of research on the round of discussions and how to handle it. A few years ago, the Swedish church wrote this white book to uh, acknowledge their wrongdoings against the Sami populations. I know that the History Museum have been working on an ethical guideline how to deal with, handle and like what to think about for research researchers, but also for people working in museums and for people that it, for people that it might concern how to think about the ethics. What do you think is the most important things to think about when it comes to the ethics? I do, I understand your question. It's quite broad. And research ethics are important and they are necessary. It's something that everyone has to deal with and that everyone has to think about. It, it is also about for the researcher to think about the ethics, but I think it's a thing to, for everyone to there's so many levels <laughs> but if a uh, burial that once was excavated let's say it is a burial that was excavated early 20th century then it was probably for uh, racial purpose and that local population wants this material to be or certain persons from this local population want the material to be repatriated and also maybe reburied it has to be considered from all kinds of aspects when it comes to ethics. Not only uh, should we do, should research be done on this skeletal remains 
or should it be repatriated? What are the what do this what do these Galito remains individuals represent? Who were they? Were they Sami? Were they Christianized? Should they be buried in a Christian way? Should they be buried if they were Christian? Were they Catholics? Were they Protestants? That's what I mean with there are so many levels. The question is more about in this sense, for example, how were they buried? I think that's something that must be or should be established before having a reburial. Because it would not is that is it to be respectful against the individual to rebury that individual individual in another way that he or she was buried? And then also uh, what I encountered reading and writing my chapter about this reburial and repatriation is that often in non-Christian burials you would find artifacts or grave goods. There can be there can be Christian burials with grave goods, and you have loads of Sami burials from the from the historic period where you would have, where they would be buried with some grave goods, which would not be a typical Christian uh, burial tradition in that sense. But shouldn't these artifacts or grave goods be reburied with the individuals then? This is what I've seen at least, it does not happen. So that also raises the question if, is this respectful towards the individual? Because then he had, then the individual has not been reburied according to the tradition that was during that time. There's so many things to think about. It's from case to case, but the ethics are of course very, very important. I think that's where we have an obligation as researchers as well. If the skeleton remains of an indigenous population or non-indigenous population where there are emotion attached to it or they do not want researchers to study them, then we shouldn't, I think. It's it's a way of uh, showing respect and... Uh... Why focus on food? And why are we interested in the cuisine of uh, earlier generations? <laughs> why we are, I don't know, but I can... I can why are you interested? In... Say for my sake. <laughs> but first of all, I think food... I mean, we need food to survive. And I mean, if you look today, it's so such a big part of our life. Today, we not only eat what would be like specifically Swedish, Sami, Danish. There's a mix of everything. And I think that tells a lot about us and as human beings, about our cultures, of our ways of living today. And if we go back to your research and these free research questions. So let me begin with the first one of them. Is cultural diversity reflected in the food cultures? It is reflected in the sense that different, first of all, different sites archaeological contexts that I've been studying of the different sites. They have very specific diets. They differ from each other, but there are also differences within the sites. Not always, but usually. So in that sense, I would say that yes, uh, there is a cultural diversity when it comes to food cultures. What I have brought with my studies is a more complex picture of it. There is often individuals that sticks out as not confirming the rule so to speak, that they would have a completely different diet. So did you find in skeletal remains that stood out? To give an example, at this site in Vivalent, that dates from late Iron Age, early medieval times, there will be 1,100 uh, common era. There is a group of individuals that have very strong terrestrial intake of proteins. Land-living animals would be terrestrial. Uh, and they, they also did not move that much. They all had a very similar mobility pattern. But then there is this one individual that during childhood differed in the diet, but in other tools seems to have the same as the others, which we interpreted as it is a woman that moved to this group at some point 
in other food or legs childhood. That was not expected, for example. If she had the same diet as the others in other food, at least as she has been living for at least 15, 20 years with them. When you have such an individual that stands out, it means that they grew up somewhere with a different food culture. Yes. And somehow they managed to move to this settlement, settle there and settle there for long enough for the food culture of this settlement to be present in their bones. Yeah. Because I guess it's in the teeths you see that she grew up somewhere else. Yeah. Yes. And in the bones you see where she died. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, the diet she had when she died. That's the idea, that they they were buried there, they lived there, and this one person moved there in other late childhood. When it came to the question about reindeers, and there the question was, what role did reindeer play in different times and different settlements? Yeah. Um, what did you find? The reindeer has a very, very strong cultural identity for the Sami population today and has been for a long time. So you would expect that reindeer would be a big part of the diet. But what we found out was that it wasn't. But other type of food was more important to them due to different reasons. I mean, reindeer during the Middle Ages was an important export, both for the skin, but I think also for the rest of the animal. Maybe the reindeer was more important as an export, and therefore they did not eat it as, as much. What would you say were your main findings? One of the more important findings was that reindeer was not as important dietary intake as we thought it was. I think we can gain so much more when it comes to mobility studies, for example, to get a better understanding of the use of the landscapes. Yeah, how people how people moved there, used it, what kind of resources resources were they after? What's in store next? I started as a postdoc in a research project in Olo in Finland that's called Domestication in Action that is actually about reindeer domestication all throughout Sápmi, mostly Finland. But that's what I'm working on right now. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I think that it was very nice and very interesting. Thank you. It's always nice to talk about your research.